0: So John chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 12 through 22 this morning. John chapter 2, 12 to 22. Hear from the word of the Lord. After this, he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and, and then Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the middle he found In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Amen. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. If you hadn't had a chance to register uh, parents uh, for the kids, uh, Children's Church check-ins out to the left. If you could do that, that's a measure we're trying to take here. We want to make sure all the kids are safe and accounted for back there. So if you could do that, that would be wonderful. Meantime, we are in John, as you know. Let's get started. I'm excited. I'm excited for this morning. At the same time, it is a challenging passage as we see a side of Jesus. We don't see very regularly as we read through the Gospels. We see, we see a side where, where Jesus is really passionate for the worship of God. So much so that he cleanses the temple in the way he does. But before we look at that, I want to do a map recap. What that is, is literally a recap with a map. (laughs) (laughs) I like maps. I'm a visual kind of guy. So I want to recap us. I want to bring us to where we're at. We're only in chapter 2, so it won't be that long. So we started at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. don't know exactly where that is. Uh, It was on the other side of the Jordan, not to be confused with the Bethany that was right near Jerusalem. And that's where we got introduced to John the Baptist, or probably better called John the Witness, as he was the witness that was bearing, bearing witness about the light, about the Lamb of God. And we see here, this is where Jesus comes on the scene and he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And we see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And this is where we see Andrew and Simon, they're called to, to follow him and come and see Jesus, they, they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Jesus is like, come, come and see. And when Jesus sees Simon, he demonstrates his authority in changing his name. He says, you will be Cephas. And so we see all that happening at Bethany. Only God has the power to really change a name, just like he did to Abraham and Sarah and Jacob. Jesus shows his God Godly authority changes Simon's name to Cephas or Peter. Then we move northbound to Galilee. That's where they head up. And this is where Jesus comes across Philip and Nathanael. And Nathanael first says, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? But then we see as Jesus reveals himself, he says, Rabbi, Rabbi. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus revealed himself to him. He said, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, you are the son of God. We see that happen in Galilee. And while they're in Galilee in that region, as we saw last week, they visit Cana because there's a wedding going there. It's a great celebration, but there was one problem. They were out of wine, So Mary goes to Jesus. She's like, Jesus, we're out of wine. And then Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Which would have totally made sense right then and there to Mary. Probably not. But he still turns the water to the wine. He takes the purification pots of all things that were used in this Jewish rite of purification, and he uses those. He fills them to the brim. And when the wine is brought to the the master of the party, it's no longer water, it is wine. Showing that a greater cleansing, the ultimate purification is here in Jesus Christ. And we see in that passage where it's not just his disciples following him, it says they saw this and they believed in him. His disciples moved from following to believing. Now That's Cana. And today in verse 12, we just see this transition John makes. They head down to Capernaum, which is along the Sea of Galilee. Not much is said here, but we know from other, the other gospel accounts that this is where Jesus basically set his headquarters for his early ministry. And this is where Mark actually says is his home at one point. So they probably made the move from Nazareth up to Capernaum. And uh, we see this location played a huge role in his Galilean ministry. So that's probably why John at least makes mention of it. But then he immediately moves the Passover of the Jews with that hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. So that's where we're at today, thus concluding our map recap. And as we look at our text today, we're going to look at the problematic worship, the passionate response, and the perfect temple. And we'll pick things up right here in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John's giving us some setting. He's giving us the the location and what's going on. The Passover feast, it's a very significant feast, huge feast. It was around April, March, uh, the actual 14th day of Nisan is where they uh, would celebrate it. And everyone, all the Jews from all over the region, not just in Jerusalem, from all over, would come to Jerusalem for this festival, remembering when God spared the firstborn of Israel because of the blood that was put on the doorposts while those in Egypt were slain because they didn't have the blood. They weren't covered in the blood. And they gather year after year, remembering and celebrating this all over. So Jerusalem was packed with all kinds of people. And naturally, they're going to go to the temple. So then we have verse 14. Jesus goes to the temple. What does he find? In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, during Passover, sacrifices had to be made. It was all a part of it. And with people coming from all over the place, far and wide, it wasn't practical to bring an oxen with you the whole way, a sheep with you the whole way. So people would come, and if you weren't from the area, you would come with money, and you would then buy an animal for sacrifice. It was was prescribed, you see it in the Old Testament, prescribed that that's how you kind of make life easier on everyone. To do that, if you're from far off, bring your money and you can buy an oxen sheep or dove or pigeon as it's translated here. And also, when people would come into town for the Passover, this is when they would pay their temple tax. But there had to be money changers because the temple tax could only be paid in the Jewish coin or the Tyrian coin because of the purity and the silver content and all that stuff. So, there needed to be money changers. Around to change the foreign currency to the proper currency. In and of themselves, the sale of animals and the exchange of currency wasn't bad in and of itself. It, it was good, it was necessary, but the worship practices had become problematic. They, they were corrupted. Because if we look at the place where they're being sold, where the money's being changed, that's where we see an issue. Jesus walks into the temple, and the first thing he sees is just this new marketplace right in the temple courts. The word used is heros, which means the temple court or the court of the Gentiles. When we see temple here, we're not talking about the inner parts of the temple. We're talking about the outer temple, the courts of the Gentiles, which you can see here. I've highlighted them in red. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is where Those who were not Jews, but were Gentile God-fearers, God-seekers, those pursuing the God of Israel, but they were Gentiles. This is where they would worship. This is where they would gather to inquire about God. Who is the God of Israel? They want to grow closer. This is where they would grow to worship, go to worship. But the Jewish leaders at the time, the temple leaders, they allowed that space to be turned into a marketplace, to not be used for worship, but to be used for commerce. An area that was supposed to be filled with the sound of of prayer, the sound of of worship and adoration, the sound of people asking questions about God and learning about God, was now filled with the loud sound of commerce and, and sales, animals making all kinds of noises, customers and businessmen making deals the sound of money changing hands could you imagine gathering to worship in that setting i mean think about it if a cell phone goes off today we're getting distracted we're going to be like who's who's ringing if a baby cries we hear the cry of the baby it's what happens we get distracted so easily so like multiply that by like 100 it would be impossible. It'd be like going to the food court to try and worship. You'd be kneeling to pray, and someone would tap on. You'd be like, "Free sample? Free? No. All right. It's good stuff. Right? <laughs> it just it wouldn't work. The marketplace. There was there was a place for it. It wasn't there. It wasn't in that spot. It's like being out in the foyer. You know, we have the foyer for people who need to be out there, emergencies, whatever, to be able to go out there and still hear the service, still hear the preaching. Hi, foyer people, if you're out there. To hear it. If someone goes out there and it becomes like conversation zone, those voices are gonna fill, it's gonna overshadow the TV. People aren't gonna be able to hear. They're not gonna be able to worship. There's a time and place for Everything. It's going to be impossible to focus with something like that happening. And that's what was happening to the Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles. And think about the implications. If you're a Gentile, what what is being communicated to you? You're an outsider and you don't matter. That's what's being communicated when that happens in the temple. But the gathering of God's people for corporate worship was always meant to be a light to the nations. It's where they would meet with God, where they would worship God, but Israel's worship was to be a light to the nations so that people would see the glory of God on display. If I was to walk into the temple, they'd be like, all right, Gentile, worship over here. Don't mind the poop, we're selling animals. Don't mind the smell, just... Just try to ignore it. Try to block out the sound. I'd be like this, this is where, so this is the God of Israel, huh? I would want no part of that. You are on the outside. You don't matter. I'd feel unwelcome. I would feel unworthy. I would want nothing to do with that. Worship is meant to, yes, glory, glorify God, but it's also meant to be missional in a sense, that people would see Israel's love, or the church would see our love for God and be like, that's belief, that's worship. I want that, I want to be a part of that. I want to worship that God. But those practices had been moved to now being self-serving and exclusive instead of God-serving and inclusive. How we treat those on the outside matters. How we communicate the gospel matters how we demonstrate the love of god it matters if we treat christianity if we treat our faith and our church like some country club that's like well i'm a part of it no you're not that's too bad you would have been good oh well if we do that are we really displaying the love of god are we even do we even grasp the gospel if we do that in our lives Romans five ten for while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life it's not anything that we have done we boast in Christ and His work we exalt Him we love Him and we love people because that's what Jesus called us to do I hope when people walk in the doors of King's Chapel if they feel a love for God and they feel a love for people, that we love the people who come through the doors, no matter what part of the journey you're on in your life. Look at Jesus' reaction to what's happening here. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I just want to make a quick note before we we really get into this. Just because it was something that, that was really interesting for me to study. And I think it's beneficial to at least think about and discuss a little bit. When it comes to the cleansing of this temple, when Jesus goes in and he clears out the animals, clears out the money changers, in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this happens at the end. Jesus has his triumphal entry. He comes in to Jerusalem during Passover. He goes to the temple, and that's when he clears people out. In the Gospel of John, here, we're in chapter 2. It's the beginning of his ministry. It's the second... uh, sign that we see in the whole book. So it's really early on. So we have the later in Matthew, Mark and Luke and then we have the earlier in John. So there's two schools of thought when it comes to Jesus cleansing the temple. There's one where it's the same event, but Matthew, Mark and Luke keep it in the spot where it was and then John for some literary reason takes it and moves it to the beginning because he thinks it works better there. Or there's a second school of thought where there's the temple cleansing in John and then there's a second temple cleansing, not just in John, but John's the one who talks about it over here. So there's an early temple cleansing and then there's a later temple cleansing. I think it's a, a, important to just think about because it, it, one, it would show a lack of change in the heart of the people if there's one earlier And by the time Jesus comes to the time of his crucifixion, they still don't get it. I think there's two. I think this first one's a warning. And the second one is more of a time of judgment. It's Something to discuss, especially in your community groups. I think it's something interesting to think about. I don't think John moved it around for any purpose. I think it happened Twice. The events, they're really different if you really look at them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're really similar. And then John's just like, this is different. Take a look. Think, for, think, th- think through it for yourself. But I just thought it was interesting. It was a, it was a good part of my study. And we'll figure out, pass that one on to you. Anyway, back to where we were. So Jesus walks in. He sees what's going on. And he's outraged. Jesus knew what the temple was supposed to be. He knew what it was for. Remember, uh, I think it's Luke tells us that when Jesus was 12 years old when he got, he got forgotten Jerusalem, when he went for, uh, I think, the same Passover with his family, he's in the temple and he's talking with the leaders. He's asking them questions and it says that the leaders were blown away by his knowledge. So Jesus, even as a 12-year-old boy, had great knowledge of the temple. Even now as an adult and being God, he knew exactly what the temple was supposed to be used for. And it was not supposed to be a Sam's Club. This all-one stop-and-shop place. Again, with free samples. (laughs) always comes back to that. (sighs) So Jesus makes a whip. He makes a whip, and like, that's so, I guess at first I read it, I'm like, that's so crazy. He makes a whip, and is like getting all these animals out, driving them out. And now a lot of people's first reaction is like that kind of like, that Ron Burgundy kind of reaction, like, boy, that escalated quickly. (laughs) That really got out of hand fast. But if you do think about it, how else are you going to move oxen Drive sheep out of this vast temple marketplace. I've never heard of an animal, but I imagine it's not easy, and a whip would probably be the most effective way. And it's not like he was like some like crazy like off the rails redneck like whipping its whip. Yeehaw! like he wasn't making a huge like riot or anything. He was doing what was necessary to get them out because there were Roman soldiers posted at the temple. And if a riot or a huge, crazy outbreak happened, they would have intervened. He would have been arrested. We don't see that happen. So yes, he uses a whip. And yes, that's pretty cool. But it's not necessarily as like crazy of a thing as we might think it is. It's what he had to do. He drives them out. He dumps out the coin of the money changers. He turns over their tables. He says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. He's fired up. He's angry. Why? I think it's a combination of two things, one of which we already kind of talked about already, but there's a what and there's a where. Now, the what, we made note that selling animals and all that stuff really wasn't bad in and of itself. But what was happening during this festival all these people are coming in, they're selling animals, but they're, th- they're like charging like these crazy like throwaway McDonald's type prices or the, um, the like concessions at like a, a, a sporting arena, those kind of prices, movie theater popcorn prices, where it's just like, really this costs this much? They were hiking up the price, the cost of what it would be to get one of these animals and charging that to the people. So it's like, yeah, you're coming from all over the place. Welcome to to the temple. Welcome to worship. We are going to rob you blind. (laughs) So happy you're here. Aren't you glad we don't do that during announcements? Give us all your money. We messed up. And then also, the money changers. There had to be this currency exchange, but it wasn't like I give you this much and this kind of money and you give me the equivalent back. It was I give you this much and then I also have to pay more in order to, to make up for the charge of exchanging my money. So a typical temple tax would be something like two days' wages. They would get charged an additional day's wage when they were exchanging their money. A day's wage. That's crazy. I can understand the temple tax. Of course. Temple needs to Function. I can understand buying animals, but when, when you are just ripping off your own people, that's messed up. That was a lot of money. That was a system that's just been totally corrupted. So that's the what. And then also, there's the where that we went over. They're happening in the temple courts. So they're taking these corrupt practices, and they're going, we're going to do this right in the temple right in the temple. They're taking these good practices and they're doing, they're, they're, they're ripping off God's people in God's house. What? That's insane. Taking advantage of people coming to worship God in the house of God. And they're doing it in the court of the Gentiles we see a problematic misplaced worship disrupting everything. The idolization of money was now causing Gentiles to not be able to worship. It's causing the, basically the robbery of their fellow Jews. And it's all happening right in this temple. I think Jesus' reaction was mild compared to what it probably could have been. Probably what it should have been well, Jesus knew better than me what it should have been, so I think he handled it perfectly. (laughs) He saw corruption. He saw this idolatry. And he put an end to it right then and there. And as he's doing it, his disciples remember, or maybe they remember after. They remembered it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was zealous. That's not a word we hear all that often. To be zealous, to be just so deeply impassioned. He was impassioned for the right worship of his father. He couldn't just stand idly by and watch as this was happening. He couldn't just go, well, that's the way it is, I suppose. On to worship. No. He was zealous for the worship of his father. And were the disciples, they remember the scripture, Psalm 69, 9, for zeal for your houses consumed me, David writes, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Zeal for his father's house consumed Jesus. And we know the end of the story. We'll see. It consumes him to the point of dying on the cross. He went to the cross because we're a broken people. We can't even get the worship of God right. That's why we need His grace. That's why Jesus, the one who goes to the cross, He's perfect. He carries the reproaches of those who reproach the Father, as it was written in Psalm 69. He bears that. He was zealous for the worship of God. Are we? Not just in a corporate sense, but like in our own personal worship, our personal lives as we live out in service to God. Do we examine our hearts? Do we examine our motives as we come before the throne of grace? Do we put our own selfish desires and motives aside as we come before God. Do the things that break God's hearts, and does that, get, does that break our hearts? Does sin and corruption, does it anger us? It's okay for it to anger us. If we're passionate about the things of God, we're gonna hate those things that aren't of God. Those things that don't honor God's name, but shame his name. Are we zealous, impassioned for the worship of God? It's an important question to ask ourselves. Let's continue down to verse 18. The perfect temple. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus goes in the temple, drives out all these, all these merchants, all these money changers. So naturally, Jesus would then get confronted. And the Jews that John's speaking of here were most likely the temple leaders, the authority, maybe someone representing the Sanhedrin, because they were in authority they were the ones who were like yeah set up set up in here this is this is such a big space set up in here sell in here change money in here they would have approved the placement they would have approved the practices when money changers are cha- like charging such, such a large amount guess who's making some money off of that not just the money changers, those in charge. So when Jesus kicks these, everyone out of the temple, he's not just challenging those selling the sheep, oxen, and pigeons. He's not just challenging the money changers. He's challenging the very authority of those in charge of the temple. So they come out and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I like how the NASB translates it. He says, then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? It, remi- it just reminds me of, of, of Exodus where, where Pharaoh's like, who is, who is the God of Israel? And God shows him in a big way through the plagues. The Jews are saying, what, sh- what sign do you show us as your and.'" Uh, I'm not that there's any actual connection there, it just reminds me of it. That's all I was sharing. I don't want this isn't like a recapitulation of that or anything. But anyway, what sign do you show as your authority? It's an authority issue. Who are you to chase these men out of the temple temple? We put them here. We told them they could do this. Who are you to do this? And of course, Jesus answers in a very plain and simple response that was really uneasy to understand. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. If you ask for a sign, and that's what Jesus says, I think I would be just like the Jewish leaders and say, um, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're gonna raise it up in three days. I would have thought Jesus was, just as they did, Crazy. That's the sign? They demand a sign and Jesus just gives them one they're not even able to fully comprehend in that time. The response was fitting. Are you serious? See, Herod was renovating the temple. That's the 46 years. The temple was built before that, but Herod was doing all these renovations. And these are just renovations that are taking this time. But the sign Jesus was referring to, the sign, the temple being destroyed, wasn't going to be in the, the here and now. But it was what's to come, you're going to see a sign. And it's going to be the ultimate sign. And John fills us in. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John explains to us, he tells us, the temple Jesus is referring to, he's not talking about this this temple. He's talking about his body. I don't know if John got that right away either. I think he was probably with his disciples when they they see Jesus raised from the dead and they're like, Now we get it, and we're totally blown away. Now we get it. John does a good job consistently, as we're going to see as we study. He does an excellent job at Jesus says something, nobody really gets it, but then John makes it understandable. Because John wants us to get it. He wants us to hear it and understand. Why? So that we would believe in him. Jesus explains that the temple, or John explains that the temple Jesus referring to is himself. He would be destroyed in three days and raised up. Now at the beginning of our text today, we talked about the temple and we talked about how these. this was the word, temple was used for these outer courts in this outer area here. When Jesus says, destroy this temple, he changes. He goes from this eros to now neos. This is not the temple courts. This is not the temple in general that Jesus is talking about. Jesus specifically says, destroy this temple, the inner part of the temple. That's what it meant. The holy of holies. The very place where God's Shekinah glory dwelled. That's the word Jesus uses when he talks about the body, his body being the temple. That would have been so significant. Jesus was saying, you want to know who has the authority for doing these signs? Destroy this place where God dwells, and in three days it'll be risen up. I have the authority because I am. I am God. I am the perfect temple. This, the structure, the temple structure that we see from the, the tabernacle to the temples was never meant to be the permanent means of meeting with God in and of itself. It was never meant to be this permanent means where God's glory dwelled with his people. It was, it was always, it was a temporary Thing that pointed forward to the coming Redeemer. The coming perfect sacrifice. The coming perfect temple. The temple pointed ahead to, to something greater. To someone greater. Listen to what John writes in Revelation 21. Look at verse 3 and verse 22. 21. 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And you know, I'm not going to skip verse 4 because it's just really encouraging to hear. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Skip down to verse 22. John C says, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The temple pointed forward to the day when there would be no need for a temple because God was there. He was the temple. He was dwelling with his people. The temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Going, looking forward to when it would go back to this, this Eden-type living with God, dwelling among his people. That was the hope. The temple was where sacrifices were made in anticipation when the ultimate Messiah, Redeemer, the sacrifice would fully come. So Jesus is saying that the place where God dwells is in me. I am the greater and better temple. Jesus is the final temple. Look how this current temple it's been corrupted. You're ripping each other off. You're not even, you're not, you don't even have the heart of God to allow outsiders in and love. But Jesus says, I am perfect. I am Emmanuel, God with us. I am the word made flesh, tabernacling, dwelling among you. Jesus is dwelling with his creation, with his people. And he's in the temple telling them, destroy this temple and in three days it will be risen. Mark tells us in chapter fifteen thirty-seven of his gospel that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there was this veil, there was this curtain that was hung, way thicker than these curtains we have up here. Way thicker. You're talking about layers and layers and layers. It was this this barrier between God and his people. The high priest could go in. That curtain was torn in two. Why? Because Jesus tore it. Jesus was the way. Jesus was the naos, the temple. Jesus was was the perfect embodiment of it. He was the atoning sacrifice. He was the high priest. He is the mediator. We see that all in scripture. All the pieces necessary for temple worship found themselves in Christ himself. That's the authority in which he acts. That's how he can go into the temple and drive them out. He was God. They asked for a sign. He didn't give them a sign right then and there. But he pointed them ahead. And throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to see sign after sign after sign that just display who Jesus is, that display his glory and his power. And John tells us why we see those signs. In John 20, 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus does these signs so that we, like Nathanael, would be like, truly, this is the Son of God, the King of Israel. The call is to believe. What do you believe? That's a, that's a tough question. That's a challenging question because there are a lot of things that are just out there that you can believe in. And social media has only made it easier to just see them filter through our news feeds and chain emails and, and everything else. What do you believe Do you believe in the authority of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God? Do you believe that he has the authority to correct that which was corrupted? Do you believe that he is the true temple? Do you believe that that he hung on the cross to bear the weight of our sins and bleed for our iniquities so that we could be forgiven? Do we believe that he rose from that grave victorious as he said he would in three days? What do you believe? I just put that out there. John says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Do you believe? If you haven't, Make the day of the day. Come to Jesus. The veil has been torn. The way is open. The barrier is down because of what Jesus did. Come before the throne of grace today. Cast your sin at his feet. Ask his forgiveness. Repent that you may have life in his name on what he has done. We're never gonna get it on our own. We're never going to, to be able to create this perfect relationship with God on our own doing. It's always by Christ, by faith in him, through grace. Maybe you're here today, you're like, yeah, I, I believe that. But like in the text, maybe, maybe you believe it, you have the head knowledge, but maybe worship of Christ has turned more of a self-serving thing than a God-glorifying thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you lost sight of the mission of God. You've gotten wrapped up in all the exterior stuff. You lost sight of the prize, of the treasure that is Christ. Repent and refocus. Put all hope and trust into our great and perfect temple, Jesus Christ. When the band comes up here, they're going to play a little bit. Just instrumental. What I want us to do, I want us to stay in our seats. I want us to to really meditate on this. Think about what do I believe? Get out of the way what you need to get out of the way. Confess what needs to be confessed. Repent of what needs to be repented of. Before we sing, just spend some time in prayer and reflect on our good and perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, what words can we say in light of your perfection? You are so good. You are so glorious. I pray that we would just be able to catch hold of that as we go out from here, that that would stay on our minds and on our hearts. You would impress it upon us Lord, help us to get out of the way in our worship. That we would seek you and you alone. That we would be mindful of what has been done for us in Christ. And that that would drive us to love you more, to love people, to point them to you. Drive us to mission. Lord, take the things away in our lives that need to be taken away, those idols, those sins that keep us from you. We know if we confess them, you are faithful. You are just to forgive. Forgive us, we pray. In Jesus' name.